You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to Let's Pharmanize. I'm Shane Garrison. <laughs> I'm Cal Vandegrift. And I'm Mickey Fergs. <laughs> and today, we're going to talk about the real drug from the fictional story of Queen's Gambit, Librium. All that and more on Let's Pharmanize. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The views and opinions expressed within are those of the authors and speakers themselves and do not necessarily represent any affiliated institution or third party. If you haven't seen it already, spoiler alert, I'm going to spoil the entire series. Oh, man. So it's a, you've seen part of it. I've seen up to, I think, like the fourth episode, the one where she's like on her own doing the chess tournament. Oh, you've seen, I've seen a pretty good portion of it. Not a second None of it. it. Okay. It's really good. So The Queen's Gambit is a coming of age period drama based on the novel of the same name by Walter Trevis, published in 1983. That's when the novel came out. The seven-part miniseries was released by Netflix on October 23rd of 2020. It's really good. It's an excellent miniseries. I highly recommend it. It stars Anya Taylor-Joy as Elizabeth Harmon, who, after being orphaned at the age of nine, uh, I think she was nine in the show, but eight in the book. I don't know why they messed that up. But she enters into care at an orphanage where she becomes obsessed with the game of chess after watching a custodian playing by himself in the basement. She immediately displays an incredible gift for chess, winning game after game, and her obsession grows rapidly as she pours over books and memorizes the moves of the greatest chess players in matches. It's a really good show. My wife and I, we loved it. My coworkers have talked about it too. The story is wonderful. The cinematography is excellent. Taylor Joy is a revelation. And now my wife and I play chess together, which is kind of fun. I'm really bad at it. But we're not here to talk about chess. This isn't Let's Chessmanize, the chess podcast. This is Let's Pharmanize, the pharmacy podcast. We talk about pharmacy. I'd like to introduce the real star of the Queen's Gambit, Librium, also known as Chlordiazepoxide. Let's put the story of Beth Harmon on the back burner for a second and talk about the powerhouse that just entered the ring. Librium is the first ever benzodiazepine. The drug class has diversified its treatment repertoire to include anxiety, insomnia, seizures, even alcohol withdrawal and muscle spasms. However, when Librium was first introduced in 1957, it was prescribed primarily for anxiety and insomnia. Its potential was discovered by Hoffman LaRoche, a pharmaceutical company who capitalized on its potency and relative safety compared to barbiturates, the preferred anxiety insomnia treatment of the time. I think we've talked about Hoffman LaRoche. Maybe. They made Accutane, I believe. Did they? Mm Mm-hmm. I believe so. Don't quote me on it, but I'm pretty sure we talked about them. Maybe. Barbiturates and benzodiazepines are similar in that their respective mechanisms both involve the GABA receptor. That is the gamma amino butyric acid receptor in the central nervous system. We know that GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter that reduces neuronal excitability in the nervous system. The GABA receptor is a ligand-gated chloride channel, and this is as pharmaceutically and chemistry heavy as this is going to get. This is going to be right here. Barbiturates and benzos bind similarly to the same receptor, but their behavior is slightly different. In simplest terms, barbiturates keep the gate open longer, but benzos allow the gate to open more frequently. This lets more chloride ions into the cell, 
hyperpolarizing it, making it more difficult to depolarize, thus inhibiting the transmission of cell signaling. Barbiturates have a famously low threshold for overdose. Jimi Hendrix, Judy Garland, Marilyn Monroe. They were quite dangerous, not as low of a threshold as opioids, but still quite potent. Benzos, over the next few decades, became a household name. Shortly after Librium was released, Valium took the world by storm and became one of the most prescribed and well-known drugs of all time. It has, in the past few decades, been overtaken in the top benzo spot by Xanax and Ativan, but it's still a top seller today. Drugs like Librium and Valium enjoyed a comfortable life without much litigation from the government, for a while at least. It was Nixon, with his legendary war on drugs, that brought the frivolity of the 60s to a decisive end with the creation of the Controlled Substance Act in 1970. Only slightly fascist. <laughs> Only slightly fascist. While drugs like cocaine and marijuana took the glory and the spotlight of the Category 1, Librium was quietly ushered into Category 4, where it would soon be joined by Xanax, Ambien, Clonopin, eventually Tramadol, and many more. I think I've covered the history of benzos, chiefly Librium, and with that, let's go back to the world of Beth Harmon and the sexiest game ever made chess. I'll be glossing over much of Harmon's experiences that don't involve Librium, and the book and series are not about the Benzo, although Librium does play a major character in the story, creating conflict with the characters who confront Harmon about her addiction and affecting the way she plays chess. I'll mostly be discussing her interactions with the drug and whether or not they pass our patented and legally valid Let's Farmonize rating scale. Beth's first experience with Librium occurs in the orphanage, days after the death of her mother. Librium is actually a part of a daily regimen for the kids at the orphanage. They take two daily to even their dispositions. That's a quote from the book. You can tell that these pills are going to take a pretty central part of the story because they're, they're mentioned on the very first page of the novel. Harmon even describes the feeling of the sort of high she gets when she takes them as it loosened something deep in her stomach and helped her doze away the tense hours in the orphanage. They also take a few of what we can assume are vitamins. Here's the first realism aspect that we're going to grade. Kids getting tranks in an orphanage. Doesn't sound like a really healthy environment, right? No, not shouldn't, really. Shouldn't some governing body step in and do something about this? Perhaps. I'd hope so. Well, in the 1950s, the FDA was too preoccupied with making sure citizens didn't confuse margarine with butter. <laughs> and that's true, by the way. There's actually legislation about that. It's been a really big thing since, like, the late 1800s. Big Dairy's been, like, pushing for the government to... to they, they were felt threatened by margarine because people were going to this like healthier, cheaper option in Big Dairy. I'm not even kidding. Like this has been like a, I want to do an episode about this on our, our Let's Farmanize. I can't take Big Dairy seriously Let's Farmanize with an F. Yeah, Let's Farmanize. Let's Farmanize. So uh, margarine products are legally obligated to indicate somewhere prominently on the packaging that they're not butter. That, that's what came about in the, in the 50s. I can't huh. believe it's not butter. That's why I think that I can't believe it's not butter is the most brilliantly named butter substitute of all time. Because they took that limitation and they turned it into a catchphrase, a product name, a disclaimer, and a testament to the margarine's quality. Hmm. And a healthier option to butter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, brilliant. Mm -hmm. Like, I love it. But anyway, sorry, that was really off track. So... This is actually pretty solid. State legislation cracking down on the administration of tranquilizers to children happens historically about halfway through Harmon's time in the orphanage. And this has an impact on Harmon and the other kids in the orphanage, uh, but we'll get to that later. So I'm gonna give this an A. I have no reason to deduct points here. I'll also include here that depicted in the Netflix series, the pills are two shades of green, like a light green and a dark green. And they look kind of like Keflex. You would know what Keflex looks yeah, like. No you, doubt. Did you count any Keflex, the antibiotic cephalaxin? I don't remember what I had for breakfast this morning. They're big so. green 
capsules. And that's what, like, exactly what these look like. Um, they might seem a tad on the large size compared to modern chlorodized epoxide, which is pretty tiny. But capsules in the 50s, I don't know what how big they were. It's so good, It's good they got it green, though, because I know chlorodized epoxide is green and black. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, most manufacturers that I know of, the ones that we have at least, are some variation of green and black, green and white, or sometimes blue as well. But they were, these were close enough. Hmm. So still an A for the introduction of Librium. Let's continue on. Beth very quickly gets hooked on the green capsules. She makes a habit of hiding pills under her tongue and pocketing them when the nurse isn't looking so she can save them up and take them whenever she wants to. Oh. Next thing in this rating we're going to talk about, this is a category, I guess, I'm lumping some similar facts together if you can't tell, is storage. Beth, when not tripping balls on Librium, <laughs> stores the capsules in her toothbrush holder on her nightstand. Can you tell me what kind of problem this might cause with the storage of medicine? Humidity. Right. Yeah. Humidity. Moisture. Yeah. It's going to be wet in there. Not only does she spit the pills out, but then she hides them in her toothbrush holder so they are not protected from moisture at all. While this likely wouldn't have a huge effect on pharmacokinetics, it's still something worth noting, and I would deduct points. However, the author does address this moisture aspect. Harmon makes an effort to dry her toothbrush after each use or just skip brushing her teeth altogether to protect the integrity of the pills. So not only is this one smart nine-year-old, she's already exhibiting signs of addiction. She's hiding her pills, which is a huge number one sign of hiding any kind of addicting habit, and she's also letting her habits affect other aspects of her life, in this case, hygiene. I was originally favoring a B here, but with the added details of Harmon's behavior, I'm going to bump it up to an A. So we got, we got two A's. It's, how did she know that moisture would even affect a pill? She's nine years she's old. smart kid. How do, I mean, how do you guys feel so far about in terms of realism? I haven't asked your guys' opinion. Pretty good. I'm feeling pretty good. I think to answer Cal's question about how she would know is probably trial and error. That's true. Maybe, so yeah. maybe she kept it in her mouth for too long and it disintegrated. So she probably made an effort to like hurry over to her little toothbrush holder and right. then the first time that that degraded in there, she probably was like, oh, that's probably something to do with wetness. That's I actually, fair. I actually don't know anything about this, but, like, do you think a capsule would have any better chance of not being able to break down compared to a tablet in terms of moisture? I'd say it'd be slightly better. Yeah, slightly, slightly, slightly better. better. Yeah. Unless the moisture got, like, within the capsule itself, yeah. I don't think it would actually affect the drug too much. True. So next we get the origin of Beth's superpowers. So we've already mentioned that she becomes a chess superstar. Well, the janitor I mentioned earlier begins teaching Harmon the moves of chess, but that's not enough. She gets obsessed with chess and displays a knack early on. Her chess skills are enhanced by her profound ability to visualize the board and imagine all possible moves and avenues her or her opponent could take. This skill is unlocked by Librium. She lays in bed at night after taking several Librium capsules and feeling the warmth of a benzo buzz. She pictures the chess pieces playing on the ceiling for hours, honing her skills and working towards becoming a chess master. I'll read a quick excerpt from the novel because I think it's a nice description of like what benzos make you feel. That night, for the first time, she took three pills, one after the other. Little prickles went across the hairs on the back of her neck. She had discovered something important. She let the glow spread all over her, lying on her cot in her faded blue pajamas in the worst part in the girl's ward near the door to the corridor and across from the bathroom. Something in her life was solved. She knew about the chess pieces and how they moved and captured, and she knew how to make herself feel good in the stomach and in the tense joints of her arms and legs with the pills the orphanage gave her. It's really pretty. It's a really well-written book. I really enjoyed it. I haven't finished it. I'm like a little more than halfway through, but I really enjoy it. Let's talk about this. I have limited experience with benzodiazepines. Prior to a surgery a few years ago, I was given a lorazepam. 
and I, I felt like I was drunk. I don't know if you guys have any experience with benzyl. You don't have to share it on the podcast if you don't want to. I don't, but that would make a lot of sense because ethanol also acts on the GABA receptor. Right. So if you felt drunk, that, that checks out. I had one patient come in one time who was asking why she felt so dizzy and discombobulated when she took her Xanax. Mm-hmm. And that's about the only experience that I've had before. Right. Yeah, the like the Ativan that I took was really weird, and one of the um, the surgeons was surprised that after the surgery, I remembered what we had talked about because he was like, "You're probably going to forget about this." And then later he asked me what we were talking about, and I was like, "Yeah, we were talking about basketball." And he was like, "Oh, I'm surprised." Wow. I think so. both times I've had to go under for any kind of surgery, uh, they're like, "Go ahead and count to ten. I'd get to like seven, and then I'd wake up and be like nine, ten, and they're like, "Yeah, we're done." <laughs> That's funny. That's never happened to me. It's like, it's like time travel. Yeah. It was really, yeah, it in, it was like really interesting. Um, apparently, I tried to fight one of the uh, the nurses when I was getting an endoscopy done. Uh, so they put some extra fentanyl in there, and I was feeling pretty good after Jeez. that. So oh. for me, I wouldn't have been able to play chess if my life depended on it. Modern benzos affect focus and can give people feelings like they're, they're drunk or inebriated, and they can negatively affect judgment and reflexes and can impact driving. That said, benzos would not be my drug of choice for a chess tournament. The way they become Harmon's crutch as she grows older. Give me a coffee and a tin of Altoids and I'll be set. What's your drug of choice for a chess tournament? Shoo-wee. <laughs> That's a good question. Hmm... Well, I think it all depends on how you visualize the game. Right. So I'm going to get a little nerdy here because chess is my wheelhouse. If you're a super analytical player like Bobby Fischer was, you probably want to do something stimulating like amphetamines or caffeine. If you're much more of a visualization kind of person, like a general strategy kind of guy, like a Capablanca, like a um, Karpov, like a uh, Vishwanathan Anand, you probably would want something like to slow your mind down. And I, I don't know how Magnus Carlsen, the current chess world champion, sees the game, but I think those are the two dichotomies that you generally find in chess is you have general grand strategy thinkers who have just enough um, micro tactics to win at a very high level of chess, and then you have the human computers, like a Bobby Fischer, like a Gary Kasparov, like what seems like Magnus Carlsen is, uh, where they just can crank through so many different possibilities that they don't have to think about grand strategy because they've already gone through the micromanagement in their head. Hmm. I'm really torn as to which way I would lean. So I was thinking about that while he was talking about the the, the name that had no vowels that he just mentioned. (laughs) And I was thinking, so either... It depends. I think I would do try on there. Dextroamphetamine. I'm not taking actual amphetamine salts. No way. I'm not doing that. I'm t- at least I'll take the dextro because it's a little bit safer. Safer. A little bit. Just a tiny bit. Or I'm just going to take a like way over the recommended dose of atomoxetine or stratera. I think improving focus, I think, would be my issue because sitting there and concentrating constantly on the board while there's a timer, I feel like I would get distracted a lot. So I think right. something that would improve my focus really well, I think, would... I'd have to do trial and error. Maybe mm-hmm. a combination of both. Do you think you could take Atomoxetine yep. and yep. Dextroamp? I would have to get crossfaded. I'd have to have, like, alcohol <laughs> alcohol and caffeine or something because just, like, if, especially if, like, there was any kind of stakes to it. Like, let's say there was, like, 50 grand on the line. Um, I would definitely need something to calm my nerves, but I also wouldn't be able to focus if I was just drunk. Well, you can't take a benzo with alcohol. That's a pretty big thing. Oh, you can. they're it's used a, for alcohol. It's a terrible idea. Definitely yeah, so... Idea. I think I, I would I would avoid that one, but 
or just taking a shot with your clonopin or whatever you're taking. I think that might not might not be the best. I was just thinking so. like four loco. It's got both. both <laughs> that is the yeah, that's actually what Beth turns to next. Actually, really. And now a word from our sponsor. So with the effect of benzos described and understood, we've talked about that a little bit. Let's talk about those dream sequences. You probably remember they were depicted pretty early in the show. And they do this really nicely. When Beth looks at the ceiling when she's laying in bed, she's able to visualize a perfect chessboard and all of the pieces. Librium, being the first benzo, is expected to have some unpredictable effects, more unpredictable effects than its successors like Xanax and Valium. And one of the commonly reported side effects is reports of hallucination of chess pieces on the ceiling. Specifically? Or yeah. just whatever? I'm just kidding. But a good number of patients either report vivid excessive dreaming or hallucinations. So it's not out of the question for a patient obsessed with chess to visualize chess pieces when they're getting Librium wasted. Even though visualizing chess pieces is plausible, I think actually being able to enhance chess skills with Librium is pretty unlikely. So I'll give this a C plus. I would give it a B. Yeah, I'm because thinking if B, you're, honestly. If, yeah. you're, okay. if you're up all night, even if you're inebriated and you're thinking about the same thing for a long time... I feel like you would, like, get some insight on, like, how to try things differently okay, when you do get fair. to practice. I mean, I've never taken a hallucinogen, but I'm imagining it all comes from based on what you were thinking, kind of like a dream would be, you know, where you, you normally have a dream based on what you were thinking throughout the day. Mm -hmm. Heavily dependent similar. on the drug. What I read was Maybe. that it was about 16% of patients in, like, a really small study had hallucinations. Hmm. Is that why you got docked a couple points, or the show got docked a couple points then? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't yeah. know. Is that that was for overdose or just for popular? Because she's overdosing on, on Librium, basically. Yeah, this isn't quite. We'll talk about the overdose aspect later. But just just on like a regular, um, regular, normal dose, I think they were still hallucinating. Hmm. OK, so following up on effects of benzo use, benzo withdrawal can be a serious condition when these nerves that were suppressed by the hyperpolarization are suddenly depolarized again, causing irritability, sleep disturbances, tension, anxiety, tremor, sweating, and withdrawal from long-term high-dose benzo use can even be deadly. Here's where something I alluded to earlier comes in, and um, for this, Mickey and Calvin, you can turn over your scripts. It's time for an interactive role play. Ooh, heck so yeah. Mickey Ferguson, you're going to play the role of Ferguson, and wow. Calvin, you're going to play Beth. Oh, God. So... I'm going to be the narrator. Should I? What, what kind of accent does she have? I need to know. I need to know my role. So she's a nine-year-old girl. Okay, that doesn't help. <laughs> um, no accent. Just pretend that you're a nine-year-old girl and you're, you're disappointed because you're just finding out that your supply of benzos is being cut short. And Mickey Ferguson, you're playing the kind but firm pharmacy tech who's relaying this information. I know who Ferguson is. He's got that southern charm. Yeah, yeah. He's a cool guy. I like him. So in, in the book, they delve into his role a little bit more. He's actually studying to be a psychiatrist. Oh. I don't think they talk about that in the show. They did not talk yeah. about that in the show. The next morning, Mr. Ferguson handed her the little paper cup as usual. But when she looked down into it, there were two orange vitamin tablets and nothing else. She looked back up at him behind the little window of the pharmacy. That's it. Next. She didn't move, even though the girl behind her was pushing against her. Where are the green ones? You don't get them anymore. Beth stood on tiptoe and looked over the counter. There, behind Mr. Ferguson, stood the big glass jar, still a third full of green pills. There must have been hundreds of them in there, like tiny jelly beans. There they are, she said and pointed. We're getting rid of them. New law. No more tranquilizers for kids. That's it, the end. That was excellent. You guys did a great job. Thank you so much. So... 
State legislation is finally cracking down on orphanages drugging children. It didn't take long, either. Shortly after this confrontation, Jolene, a friend of Harmon's, notices that Beth's been edgy lately and asks if she's experiencing withdrawal. You haven't withdrawal symptoms. I don't know. What are those? Withdrawal. I don't know. You getting edgy? Here you are. You look around. There's going to be some jumpy orphans around here the next few days. Withdrawal for benzos sets in quickly, but it's usually short-lived. Librium withdrawal can be pretty intense, and it's got a feisty reputation among benzos for withdrawal psychosis, among other characteristic withdrawal symptoms I mentioned earlier. Benzo use, dependence, and withdrawal is, as you can imagine, not something that's been studied in children, because obviously that would be appalling. From the outside, it appears that her withdrawal is pretty mild not out of the realm of possibility for a kid irregularly taking benzos for a short time. It's assumed less than a year, probably less than six months. She's still the same age she was when she first arrived at the orphanage. Benzo dependence can start pretty early in the course of therapy, but withdrawal symptoms could vary pretty widely based on baseline use and duration. I think her agitation and irritability are pretty realistic. I'm going to rate this withdrawal a solid A. That's fair. Yeah, I've heard that coming down from a lot of benzos, especially the early ones like Valium, well, earlier than Xanax, I should say, mm -hmm. is pretty rough if you don't taper them. Yeah. And I've heard that like, it's similar to alcohol withdrawal in the way it feels. Um, but again, like you said, it's probably shorter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a lot more cell damage done by long-term high concentration of alcohol. Definitely. So now for the next exciting moment in Beth's time at the orphanage. Okay. Beth, deciding to take matters in her own hands, decides to perform a daring heist. During Friday movie night at the orphanage, when all the kids are sitting in the auditorium watching Ice Age 2, The Meltdown. <laughs> Just kidding. It's like 1959. I don't is know. Is that Ice Age 2? Was that The, the Meltdown? Meltdown? The Meltdown yeah. was number two? I, I Googled it this morning to make sure that I was looking, you know, naming the right one. That's good. Uh, it's like 1959. I don't know what they're watching. Beth decides to break into the pharmacy and steal the massive jar of Librium sitting on the counter, practically waving a big sign saying, steal me. Beth happily indulges. Sneaking out of the auditorium under the guise of going to the bathroom, she busts into the pharmacy and starts shoveling pills in her mouth and pockets. It's unclear, but it's assumed she takes at least 20. In a great dramatic moment, the headmistress of the orphanage rushes in, followed by the staff and all of the children too, right as Beth Harmon passes out, drops the jar, sending capsules and bits of glass scattering all across the floor. You remember that scene. It was a good scene. Oh, yeah. That was iconic. Yeah. Harmon is rushed to the hospital where she has her stomach pumped and receives an IV of something. I think they skip this part in the show, but it's described in the, in the book briefly. When Harmon wakes up, she's got a hangover and a bunch of angry adults who fail the vibe check. Let's break down this scene because a lot happened here and there's quite a bit to discuss. First, let's talk about the LD50, which, as we know, is... Can somebody define LD50? Yeah, it's the lethal dose in which 50% of, of the given population would pass away from That's that amount. That's yeah. perfect. That's, like, exactly what I have in my notes. So the 50% of the test population die, usually mice, hopefully mice. For Librium, according to the safety profile conducted by the FDA, it's about 123 mg per gig, give or take, for IV. And oral bioavailability of Librium is actually really high. It's reported to be 100%. Let's say these capsules are 10 mg, because on the poster for the show, there's actually a bottle of Librium and it says 10 mg. 20 times 10 mg is 200 milligrams. The normal weight of a healthy nine-year-old girl is about 28 kilograms. LD50 here would be 
3,444 milligrams of Librium. Her dose, 200 mg, was about 6% of that LD50 for her body weight, which I extrapolate to be a 3% chance of being a fatal dose for Harmon, that is, if no intervention was taken. Threshold for overdose for benzos alone, while not being high, isn't as low as opioids or taking benzos in conjunction with any other compound that affects GABA receptors like alcohol, which Mickey mentioned earlier, coupled with the fact that she did get a stomach pump pretty quickly. She had a really good chance to survive the overdose with limited lasting effect. I also mentioned a mysterious IV, the contents of which are not mentioned in the book or Netflix series. This is a long shot, but do you guys remember the antidote for a benzo overdose? Ooh, is it? I think we've heard it once in our curriculum. Benzo overdose. It's yeah, something that. Tell me, I don't remember. Oh, is it like a phosphate binder? I don't think so. I'm it's it's it acts on the receptor. So I'll, I'll just. Oh, it you. acts on the receptor. Yeah. It's flumazenil. Oh, definitely wouldn't have gotten it's that. It's a benzo antagonist. It competitively inhibits the GABA benzo receptor complex. It's got a high affinity, so it can reverse the binding, kind of like naloxone does for opioids. The problem with flumazenil is that it wasn't described until 1981, and it wasn't approved for another decade. So this IV substance isn't likely a benzo antidote. It may, however, be some kind of fluid required after a stomach pump. I'm not familiar with the guidelines or procedures for stomach pumps, whether they have to give you nutrients or something yeah. afterwards, or it could be a vitamin complex. That was more my theory, was it's probably yeah. just normal saline Exactly. Or something. I, I know that B complexes are often administered after heavy alcohol consumption. Do you have any insight or thoughts on that? Maybe, like, my best guess is it's one of three things. It's either normal saline, it's lactated ringers or it's sodium bicarb maybe was it yellow or what color was it was it clear i don't think it was described in the book and i didn't bring okay. the book i should have okay well especially, if it was yellow it might have just been a banana bag who knows and yeah in the 50s especially if it was had anything to do with like arrhythmia or a low heart rate they probably would have given bicarb hmm. um, because i know that that's something that we used to do for uh coding blue patients but we don't do that anymore because okay. it gives you a false pulse hmm. The reason I say it might have been a banana bag was because banana bags are typically used for hangovers. I don't okay. know if you've ever seen um, maybe Grey's Anatomy, I think, hmm. one of those where someone was walking around with their banana bag because they were hungover or something like that, or they were talking. I, can't, I don't remember. I didn't watch Grey's right. Anatomy. But I remember just seeing that at some point. But, yeah, that is used currently for hangover relief. So okay, and it it's like been. a rehydration thing? Yeah, it's got, like, folate. It looks like thiamine, magnesium. It's like a bunch, okay. of, bunch of electrolytes. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So I couldn't find anything directly incorrect about the overdose sequence. I'm going to give it another A. I thought it was pretty solid. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah, yeah, I think that's pretty solid as well. Also pretty common, especially if you don't know how much someone's taken. You'd, yeah. You either give <laughs> make it come out one end or the other. Right, yeah. So let's fast forward through Harmon's cold turkey, kicking of the Librium habit, and she gets adopted by a lovely suburban family with definitely no skeletons in the closet, named the Wheatleys. It's been a few years since Harmon's run-in with Librium, and she's adjusting to life with the family. She's playing chess again, when one day, Mrs. Wheatley sends Beth on an errand for a pack of cigarettes and a prescription for Zanzalam. This is the fictional name used for the real-life version of the drug that this is based on. And as you can guess, it's a cute portmanteau of Xanax and Alprazolam, right. which hasn't actually been invented yet, by the way. That came out in 1981. Obviously, Beth gives in to her addiction tendencies and starts habitually sneaking pills from her adopted mother, Mrs. Wheatley. My tranquility medicine. <laughs> Dr. Talbot has decided I need more tranquility. Much more. Can you get me a glass of water, dear? Yes, ma'am. Why do they only fill these bottles half full? 
Her addiction continues with some barriers to her getting access to pills, but she always seems to find a way to get lit. She experiments with alcohol and marijuana, gets involved in messy love triangles, all the tropes of a classic coming-of-age story, like Harry Potter. Ultimately, she kicks her addiction and learns to play chess without the crutch of substances and realizes that the abilities and skills were within her all along. She and her friends go on to live happily ever after, while the Wheatleys get divorced and Mrs. Wheatley dies of hepatitis. Hmm. So, overall, I'm going to go over the grading that I've given so far. A, B, or C? Unclear. I thought about diving into that more and talking about that, but we're already at like 30 minutes. Oh, okay. so. <laughs> Intro and setting. A. Overdose? A. Storage? A. Effects? I said C+, plus. you guys said B. Withdrawal? A. Overdose? A. Overall, this is a really solid presentation, and I give the realism of Librium an A minus. It seems like Walter Travis really did his research and didn't over-dramatize or stigmatize the effects of benzos and addiction. Apart from the effects of the pills themselves, which were a little mystical, it's pretty solid. The series gets the Let's Farmanize stamp of approval. Heck yeah. Yeah, Shane, I would also give it an A for the, the habits of addiction that it portrays, mm -hmm. uh, such as hiding the pills, such as sneaking around to get more, uh, the constant use of them for escapism. Definitely. So, definite, definite A on the portrayal of addiction. I don't know about childhood addiction. It's not something I've studied, but... <laughs> I don't think anybody has. God, I hope, I hope that doesn't need to be an area of study. Yeah. So, when was this, when was this movie... Or, sorry, when was this book written? It was written in the 80s. Oh, okay. So... I think we got to go back in time, and I don't even think we gave it the seal of approval or the stamp of approval back then because it was so not not accurate. But uh, this ending sounds a whole lot like what, what we talked about with Limitless and the modafinil thing, mm -hmm. where you learn to do your thing without the drug. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So uh, I guess we're going to have to knock, I don't know, even. I think we gave it like a C or a B minus back then. It's down to a C plus now. I'm... I'm pulling a couple points off. You're reducing Limitless's grade even I am. further? I am. Yeah, we're going already back like tanked. I mean, no, it was bad. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. I think we have to because now it's just a copycat of this book, I think. Okay. I mean, it's the same story, I uh, I mean, not quite, but <laughs> I mean, not at all the same story, but No, the same story ending. You see what I'm saying? We're like at the end. Well, Bradley the limitless Cooper's thing like, was ambiguous cuz it said he still retained some of the magic power from the magic fake pill. Is that, I don't know, well, I don't know. Because Remember we talked about this, because yeah. he was like, he had like supervision and could like, Yeah. I mean, he was still Maybe. like Superman. Yeah. I see everything, Carl. I'm 50 moves ahead of you and everybody else. Something's pumping a half mass in there. Walls of your heart are dilated. Aortic valve stand up, so you need to get that replaced. But he, he like learned to do it or something. Like yeah. he used so the power of so the drug. But yeah. then it was also like alluded to that he still had access to the drug. So I think the moral of the story is Bradley Cooper is a liar. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I've gathered. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter to keep up with our episodes and content. And special thanks to Kelly Kerr for making our music.